G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Murch. Today, recording from my dining room table. It's a bit too cold to head out to the studio, and I've got a catch-up episode for you today as well, before we head into the fully-fledged episodes in the next little while or so. Catching up with an artist we last spoke to back in 2019. They have a brand new and very important record we're going to have a chat to them about today. Sam Buckingham, you've just come off the national tour of the Dear John album. You're about to hit the road soon again for a few more dates, so people shouldn't feel like they've missed out completely. So we did six weeks of tour dates, which have just finished a week ago, and they were, honestly, it's been my favourite tour so far. And it's so funny because I loved being on tour so much and I started to get really excited about coming back home. And now that I'm home, I'm loving being back home. I feel like I did a really good job over the last six weeks. I've been doing work to get ready for the next run of shows. And it feels like a really beautiful balance. Before COVID, when I was touring a lot, playing, you know, six nights a week or something like that, I didn't feel balanced. It was too much. And then COVID happened and I wasn't out playing any shows and that didn't feel good either. <laughs> so I feel like I'm kind of like the Goldilocks at the moment <laughs> of touring. It's it's not too much. It's not too little. It's just right. As an independent artist, you get to decide how this course of your music's going to be, which is the thing people need to remember. You are the example of how being an independent artist can work. It is hard. It can be tiresome. It can have rejection as well, but it can work. And when it does work, this is where we're at, place where it's not too hot, not too cold. Exactly. And the other important thing about that is in order to make it work, there's so much stuff that goes on behind the scenes that, you know, the average person who doesn't work in music wouldn't know about. And so it's really important as a self-managed artist, I have a team, I have an agent, I have a publicist, I have an assistant, but it's still so much work for me as a self-managed artist, not only get tours up and running, but to also just run my business, to do everything that's required in order to be able to share my music. And so I need that balance. I need to be on the road for a certain amount of time and then at home just sitting down at my desk doing work nine to five for a bunch of time as well. People sort of have this idea that to be working as an independent artist means that you're just writing songs all the time or, or you're just on the road all the time. And it's not that at all. So I've really learned that no matter how much I love touring, it's not sustainable for me to constantly be doing it. I need to rest and I also need to regroup so I can make smart business decisions. The, the strength of this record that you want to be for women. Yeah, it, it was really, really important to me when I was writing the album, when I was recording the album, and it's still really important to me every time I speak about it, every time I stand on stage. I had a vision when I was making this album. It was, it was so clear. I knew that I was writing it for me and I knew that I was creating something that I needed to hear for myself. It was almost like I was writing into my own future, you know, and I also knew that I was writing it for a woman that I didn't know and that I would never know and that I would never meet. And I had a picture of her in my mind as well. And by that, I mean, it was for women. It was for all women. You know, what just happened in the United States with Roe versus Wade and like everything that's constantly happening <laughs> around the world for women, I feel angry about it. I feel sad about it. Sometimes I feel helpless. Sometimes I feel like I don't know what I can do. And making this album was part of my solution to that. I can't do everything. 
but I can do some things. And as an artist, I can use my voice to share my own experience, to share my own stories and to stand up on stages and to use social media to whatever audience I have at any given moment and say, here's what I feel. Here's what happened to me. Here's my opinion on this. Here's my thought on this. And I believe that that's also my responsibility as an artist. If I feel really strongly about something, then it's my responsibility to to share that. This album for me is, it's more than just I made an album and I'm really proud of it. It's I made an album, I'm really proud of it, and I really believe in what I'm saying and in the message and I want as many people to hear it as possible, not because I think I'm the guru of all things related to women or because I think everything I say is the most right that it could ever be. It's because I understand that my stories are not unique to me. My stories are so many other people's stories and so many other people don't have the platform or they don't want to use a platform to speak about them. So it's my job to do that on their behalf. On a podcast recently, and I'll put it in the show notes, you were talking about you telling the truth every time. And of course, that's your truth and the way that you're seeing the world. You've had discussions with audience members and people have already listened to the album. What's that truth been like to listen to? You mean other people's truth? Mm. It's so powerful. And to be honest, like at first, specifically with this album, for the first couple of weeks when I released this album, I really struggled to connect with the power of that. I felt so overwhelmed with the fact that I had shared my truth so honestly and openly it wasn't that I felt necessarily vulnerable or scared or that it was right or wrong or whatever. It was just, it was so big. It was such a big deal for me to, on a personal level, but also all of the work that was involved to put the album out. And as soon as, as soon as it was out in the world, I just had messages flooding in. I've never experienced anything like this before. People who were listening to the album and messaging me and saying, I've been crying all day. This is incredible. Watching my videos and saying, this is so powerful. Thank you for sharing this. I can relate to this. This is my story. And it was so overwhelming because it was actually exactly what I had envisioned, but I didn't really know what that meant at the time when I was writing and recording the album. I knew that it was for me and I knew that it was for every other woman on the planet if she wanted it. But I... I couldn't, there was no concept really of what that meant in the real world, of what that would equate to and what experiences I would then have because of that. And so it took a couple of weeks to really adjust and go, okay, this is how it is. Like I made this thing and I told the truth and now the truth is reflected back to me and now people are responding to the truth and now people are gaining something from me sharing my truth. This is how it is now. And once I settled into that and that feeling of overwhelm just kind of calmed down a little bit and I understood my place inside of all of it, it's just become this absolute gift. It's just so beautiful. And I literally am at shows every night and having people come up and tell me how these songs, this music has positively impacted their life. And as an artist, I don't know if I can ask for anything better than that. <laughs> you know? Like, and it's, you know, people are sharing their really serious stories sometimes with me. And I think that's that's a privilege and that's an honor to have somebody feel safe and seen enough to know that they can 
can share that with you. So I don't take that lightly. I want to take you back to the studio space, which in fact was a lounge room, I believe, as well. This is your fourth album, and yet again, you've worked with Ken Eastwood on this album. Dear John, the title track was done, and within hours, maybe a day, you went back to Ken and said, look, that album that I had that we were doing, I don't have that album anymore. I've got a song called Run. And so from Dear John Run, you had the entirety of this record. Yeah. Yeah, that was really huge. So it wasn't quite in a matter of hours. <laughs> it, was, I, <laughs> it was close, but it wasn't quite. I had 12 songs written. And of those 12 songs, I had Dear John. I had Chicken Wings. Listener, that's an actual name of a song. Chicken Wings is an actual name. That's not a draft name. That's not a bookmark. That's an actual song. The name. (laughs) I had Dear John. I had Chicken Wings, not for dinner, that song. And I had, I think I had Stand as well. So I had three out of the 10 songs that now are on the album. But I also had nine other songs. That was the album that I had planned. It was basically just a collection of what I thought were my best songs. You know, no particular theme, no particular style or anything like that. It was just, these are the best songs I've got. And so we had done pre-production for Dear John and we had started pre-production for another song of mine, which I haven't ever released called Fractions. And Kent went home. So we were doing pre-production in my lounge room, sort of a makeshift studio of his gear and my gear and, We just lumped it all together and he came over a couple of days a week for a couple of months to do pre-production. He went home one night and I went to bed and I wrote Run in the middle of the night. I woke up in the middle of the night and Run just came at me. And it was so clear to me when I wrote that song that I had more to say. And it was really about that. It wasn't so much about like, oh, all these other songs aren't good enough. I have to write better songs. Run really showed me that there was so much more inside of me that I hadn't yet expressed about my life experience, which for me, like, that's what I'm writing songs about. I'm writing about my life experience for the most part, not always, but for the most part. And it was this real light bulb moment. And I guess it is around that idea of truth of like, I haven't been telling the truth. I've been living, thinking I was telling the truth, thinking I was writing songs that were real and based on my life but they were actually songs that were written based on a version of what I thought was happening in my life. But I had since gained more information about, you know, the relationship that I had been in and the dynamics of that and specifically that it was emotionally and psychologically abusive and I had been learning more about myself and and I had been, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, been looking back on the songs that I had been writing and the place from inside of me that they had been coming from. And they didn't feel like truth anymore. They weren't truth anymore. And Run helped me access the new truth, the actual truth, the actual reality of what I was experiencing. Not the convenient Ken, truth. I have a sense there was a convenient <laughs> truth you were telling yourself. Not a lie, but a convenient truth to get you yes, through whatever was yes. happening at you, to you, through you. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it was a more convenient, more palatable truth. And it was my truth at the time when I wrote the songs based on the information that I had, based on the knowledge that I had. But then as, as new information came in and I, you know, translate, started to translate that into songs and specifically run, um, I guess I kind of put run and did John next to each other as well. And that informed a lot for me. I was like, hold on a second. Run happened and did John, I've already written 
something was going on and I need to process that. And so the album became like writing songs, the new songs for the album. So I wrote seven new songs to then make the 10 that are on the album. I wrote those songs within, I don't know, a month or two. Writing those songs became me not only uncovering my actual truth, but also, like I said earlier, kind of writing myself into the future that I wanted. So I was very much in a process of healing from this relationship. I was learning and unlearning a whole bunch of things. I was reassessing most things in my life and I was making decisions about how I wanted to be and who I wanted to be and how I wanted to live and what I wanted for myself and the world moving forward. And so the album became me creating that through my affirmations, which were my songs. What kind of producer is Kent Eastwood? And I guess what I'm asking by that is, what does he bring to the record? What do you share with Kent? How does that working relationship work? We co-produced this co-produced, album. Yep. So we both produced it together. And my previous albums, he didn't produce with me or for me. He played instruments. So he's a multi-instrument. He's, a, he's an incredible producer, an incredible multi-instrumentalist. Um, he plays all of the pianos that ever existed, all of the guitars that ever existed. He has a brilliant mind for music. And so it kind of felt like a natural progression then to work on this album together as co-producers because we've been friends for a long time. He's played in my live band for a long time. He's played on my records for a long time. And to be honest, I don't think there's anybody in the world that understands me musically in the way that he does. We speak that same language. And because we're such close friends, we're brutally honest with each other and we challenge each other in a really awesome way, you know, because we we have this beautiful friendship where we just want each other to be our best selves and we believe in each other's best selves. And so it was so great because what he brings as a producer is so multidimensional. He brings years and years of musical experience as a songwriter himself and a performer himself, as my right-hand man in a lot of ways, as a multi-instrumentalist and as a complete music nerd. I mean, he is the biggest music nerd and he has spent his entire adult life learning about how music works and self-studying that and teaching himself how to do things like create string arrangements and play the bass and play the cello. And he's just constantly thirsty for more musical information and for more creativity. He brings this really broad range of influences to the work that he does. And then obviously I bring mine as well. And For some reason, when the two of those come together, it just makes sense. And so we were working on on the production ideas for this. And for this particular album, what we did was we created a blueprint for the whole album. I would come to him and I'd be like, this is the song. This is what I want to record. And we would write all of the parts, all the guitars, all the keys, wrote all the drum parts, the bass lines, the backing vocal arrangements, the string arrangements, all the percussion parts. There's not anything that you hear on the Dear John album as it is released in the world that we didn't already create in pre-production. We wrote all of that and then we took it to the studio for the musicians and we said, can you please play this exact thing but yeah. better? From from the vision yeah. that you had from the what you call the blueprint, rightly so, to yeah. the final yeah. album, did you get that sense yeah. of everything was like 
each song was its own piece of art. Absolutely. Yeah. And we were very intentional about that. When we were in pre-production, we were constantly asking what serves the song? What is this song trying to say? And what is the feeling of this song? And, you know, which is a very different approach than being in the studio and jamming with a bunch of musicians and seeing what sounds good and feels good, which is an amazing way to make a record. But for this one, I wanted every single instrument to tell a story within the story. That was incredibly important to me. We had a lot of conversations, Kent and I, about the vision for the record and the vision for each song and the meaning behind each song. We weren't interested in doing, in fitting into any particular genre or doing anything really cool with production, you know, cutting edge or, you know, whatever. We, we were just like, what is the song asking for? That's the only question that we have. And so... That was informed by what I was singing lyrically or what I wanted to do with my voice or by how I wanted someone to feel by the time they got to the end of the song. I love approaching making music in heaps of different ways, but for me, approaching this particular album in this way, what I feel like it created was, like you say, each song feels like its own piece of art, but it also creates this really cohesive story because when Interestingly, when you can get so granular and so detailed about each specific piece of a story, then all of the details weave together and you take 10 steps back and you look at the overall piece of art and it's this intricately woven thing that makes sense as a whole piece. But you don't get that if you don't have all of the tiny little details in every little section. It's almost like, I don't know why this has come to my head, but like, Harry Potter, we know the characters so intimately because J.K. Rowling introduces us to the characters and she writes the characters in a way so that we know their tiny little idiosyncrasies, so that we know certain personality traits, so that we know exactly how their face is going to respond to this, that or the other. Like she puts in all these tiny details for us to really understand who each character is And that's how we know what their role is in the greater story of, you know, the magic that is Harry Potter. I'm a big Harry Potter fan. Mm. And their role within that friendship group or their role within that school or their role within community of wizards and witches. We, We only can understand that because we understand exactly who that person is. And I feel like it's kind of the same with these songs. We can only understand the true message of the album by getting really clear on the true message and the true energy of each and every song. Currently hearing a catch-up with Sam Buckingham about their latest album. Coming up on Radio Notes on the podcast feed very soon, CNC Music Factory's Freedom Williams about his solo album from the archives, Shag Rock from Brisbane about their latest music, a double album from them, We find out about what it's like to swim and learn from the dolphins in real life with Melody Horrell. And for those 90210 superfans, back from the archives, Jeremy Jordan, he who brought you Right Kind of Love. To make sure not to miss those up-and-coming conversations, make sure to subscribe to Radio Notes or follow on your favourite podcast app. Now back to our chat with Sam Buckingham. Let's talk about now the live element, because you're about to go back out on the road again and uh, do a bit more of the Dear John tour, which I'm sure for every John in the world walking past the post is like, oh, what have I done now? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Who took the album photo first? 
called Elise Stridham took that. She's a friend of mine and Kent's actually, um, and she used to live in the Northern Rivers area. She's since moved. Uh, we did a photo shoot quite soon after I did the album actually, and a lot of people have come up to me at the show saying, are you Sam? Where's your hair? <laughs> because I've since shaved my head. <laughs> so I've got the cover of the album is me with hair and the, and the tour poster is me with hair and then I show up to do the gig with almost nothing on my head. See, normally That's people do that post the relationship, but you waited till you'd written the album about those kind of relationships, <laughs> not necessarily the same one. <laughs> then you shave the head for the film clip. You made it up. That's right. <laughs> I did, I did. <laughs> something more film clip in the show notes check it out i want to ask about how's it been turning it particularly in the way that you're currently touring it might change for the next tour but the tour you've just come off of was very much a solo tour can you talk to us about that process and deciding what is on the um, ableton push machine deciding what goes on that and what you do live what you're going to loop what you're not going to loop talk to us about that process and i guess the kind of liberation you got from actually being able to do something by yourself across the nation, right across Australia? Firstly, it was amazing, the, the, the sense of liberation I felt, absolutely. It was so interesting because once I had done the album and I knew that I would be touring it at some point, and this was all still happening while COVID was quite a thing and there was no touring, I knew from a practical perspective that touring with a band wasn't going to be possible. It's so expensive already to tour and especially now because prices of everything have gone up. And, you know, even though I've had amazing response to the album and amazing response to the shows, I've got so many people come to the shows, heaps of the shows have been selling out. It's also, you know, I was aware that there was a risk, you know, because people aren't necessarily always as super keen and ready to come out at the moment. So I was really factoring all of those practical aspects and I knew that I had to and wanted to be touring solo but we did such an amazing job on the production (laughs) like I have to showcase that and I wanted the show to be more dynamic as well and the show is constantly evolving I'm actually working this week on adding some more songs that I do on the Ableton push for the show Mm. at the moment I've got I think four songs that I use the push for and the rest is me on guitar. And so I'm adding in a few more for the next run of shows or just to have the options so that, you know, depending on the mood of the show, I can decide what to do. I've always been an artist that plays guitar and and sings on a stage. That's kind of always been my thing. I started with an acoustic guitar and then I started with actually a nylon acoustic guitar and then changed to full-size Maiden and then I changed to a mini Maiden and then I moved to using a mini Maiden acoustic guitar and an electric guitar on stage. Then I started playing around with a loop pedal for my vocals. That's all just kind of happened and it felt like a natural progression to add something else in. The Ableton Push, I feel so much freedom because I live loop my vocals. So there's a song that I do completely a cappella. I've got like 24 different harmonies that I put on it and I do a whole bunch of stuff super duper fun I do a song like that I have one rich girl which is like super percussion heavy and there's all these fun things going on and I can trigger all the percussion sounds and really play with it and I think for me like performing as a solo artist I really believe that a song needs to stand on its own two feet on just piano and vocals or Mm. guitar and vocals or whatever instrument and vocals I think if, if it doesn't do that it's it's not a good song in my opinion but to be honest with you, I was getting bored just playing guitar all the time. I just wanted a bit of a challenge. And so standing on stage now and I, on this tour, I'm just playing the whole album. 
That's all I'm playing. No other songs because that's what I want to play. Well, that's also very important because this album is such a defining departure from where you were before that it's really exactly. introducing what the next stage would be. I'm going to ask this question from exactly. another podcast just to get more information of what you said. Uh, you say a new cycle is coming on. What is this new cycle now that you put Dear John out? I don't know yet, John. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, I, I, I don't know yet. Like, I know that something else is coming. And it's so interesting because I can tell when a new cycle is coming on because I'm no longer interested in doing things the way I used to do things. Like, when I was writing Dear John, I was in a very specific rhythm. I was doing things in a way. I was writing a certain kind of song and I got every single thing out that I wanted to get out. I said every single thing and I wrote the songs to sound exactly how I wanted them to hear. And it's so natural that then after you've done that, you're like, okay, cool, what's next? Like I don't want to keep doing the same thing my whole life or my whole career. That's just going to get really boring. And even for years and years and years as I've been much more folk Americana, I think even then my style changed quite a bit within that genre. And so now I would, I guess, describe my style as indie pop, alternative pop, something like that. Still sing a songwriter very, very much, but yeah, it's kind of moved into that different kind of zone. I don't know what's next, but I think that it's really important to let go of what you've done before to make space for what is coming. And I think part of the reason why I don't know what's next yet is because I can't let go yet of Dear John. Like I know something new is coming. I know that there's like another project that's kind of bubbling that really wants to be heard, but I'm not ready for it yet because I'm still so in love with Dear John and I still really believe in it as an album and I want to work really hard to get people to hear it because I'm so proud of it and I and I see how much people love it. So I don't know what's next. So exciting to see where you were last time we spoke officially to where we are now and to think that you can actually go even further is just brilliant. <laughs> Isn't that a cool idea? <laughs> Whilst there is that strength, you've also been doing support spots. I feel like that was a warm-up to your own gigs as well. Can you give us a bit of a brief insight of um, touring with the likes of Tim Freeman of the Whitlams, Kate Miller-Heike, yes, the Eurovision Kate Miller-Heike Australian entrant, Ben Lee, who's just done a song with Megan Washington about getting high as parents. And did that actually encourage you on your own tour, on your own headline gigs? Yeah, I, that was so important for me doing those shows recently and on so many levels. They're all artists that I think are incredible and totally respect what they do and really like them as people as well. When I was playing those shows with them, so that was kind of happening, you know, in that period when COVID was still very much, I mean, it's still a thing now, but you know what I mean? Like COVID was still definitely a thing, but we were like putting our feet in the water and we were trying to do some shows and sometimes some managed to happen and sometimes they didn't. And it was kind of in that period. So I made a conscious decision not to book my own tours in that time. But then I was given these opportunities and I was playing songs from the album when I was opening for these artists. I don't think I was playing any of my older songs by that point because I'd already recorded Dear John and I was already planning on releasing them. And as a songwriter, I was like, my new songs are way better than my old songs. I'm just going to play some of those. As a support spot, you know, doing the shows that I was doing, theatre shows, opening for higher profile artists, you know, I've got half an hour on stage, which basically means I've got five songs plus a little bit of talking. And so I want to pick my very best songs to present. And so it was actually really important to me because it started to give me an idea of 
of how people were responding or would respond to these songs, which to just be a very much a human, like it just, it felt really important. It felt really good to in real time have those positive responses because, you know, I can make an album and go, this is a really good album. I think people are really going to like it. But if nobody's even heard it, I don't actually know if that's true or not, you know. So it meant a lot to me to be able to play those shows and not only have the audience members respond in such a positive way, but to have the artists that I was supporting respond in such a positive way as well. Really got a lot of great feedback from from all three of them, Tim, Ben and Kate. I think that really helped me as I was preparing to release and tour the album. It really helped me to know that I was on the right track, which we all need to know that we're on the right track. It also helped me to understand which of my songs was, you know, I picked my five strongest songs that I thought to open those shows for those artists. And then out of those five, I saw what got the best response consistently night after night. And I, okay, cool. Well, maybe that's going to be a good single option or maybe I should, you know, make a video for that song. So it helped me get some information as well and, and make some decisions about what I was going to do. And I'm just so grateful for those opportunities, you know, and to be respected by artists that I respect so much and to be appreciated for my work by them. Like people say you shouldn't, care what other people think screw that like of course we care what other people think (laughs) and it matters to me that those people appreciate what I do so it was really important for me in that time this album you've made very clear in this conversation and throughout the representation of it it's for other people more than it is for you so what music have you been listening to has been part of your life what what other artists have been there for you oh I love that question Uh, Okay, so there's an artist that I'm super into at the moment called D-Smoke. He's a rapper from the United States. And he was actually on the show Rhythm and Flow, which is, I think it's produced by Cardi B. And it's like the, it's America's search for the the next hip hop star kind of thing. And um, (laughs) me and my partner started watching it and got obsessed with it. And as soon as D-Smoke came onto the screen, I was like, this person is going to win. This person is going to win. I just knew it. Spoiler. (laughs) And watching his journey throughout the show and then listening to his songs and following him on social media and stuff, I would say he's been one of my biggest influences at the moment just in terms of um, not only how incredible his music is but how he is as an artist and who he is as an artist and what he stands for and how he expresses that through his music. So I've been listening to that and actually a lot of other rap and hip-hop as well. I actually like to listen to music that doesn't have lyrics. I find that that brings me a lot of, like a sense of grounding and a sense of comfort. So I listen to like hang drums, like hang drum playlists on Spotify and meditation music and things like that. And that actually really helps me to stay grounded while I'm doing all of these really big things that I think that's a very separate thing to, you know, the music that I'm listening to that I absolutely love. And I could rattle off way more artists, obviously I'm not only listening to D smoke, but from a sense of kind of what's actually getting me through, it's music that is meditative. It's music that just helps my nervous system to stay balanced and helps me to slow down and be mindful and intentional. I get so excited about work. <laughs> I get so excited about playing shows and making music and, and doing the things that I 
have to do behind the scenes in order to get everything done. Like I'd like bound out of bed and I'm like, let's do this, you know, <laughs> let's make stuff happen. And I have this energy for it and I have this excitement for it. And that's an, a really amazing, beautiful thing. And I need to balance that out with long walks on the beach and going to yoga and listening to music that just fills the house or my car or my ears or whatever with a sense of nothing. The rhythm of this album has that sense of urgency but importance to it. Can you talk to us briefly or longly about how rhythm played a part? Because as we've said, there was a blueprint to where the songs were going, but there's a particular rhythm. When you say rhythm, do you mean like my phrasing when I'm singing? Yeah, do you mean your like articulation? The percussion and drums. A lot of that was quite influenced by music. Um, and I definitely do not think I'm a rapper. Please, everybody know that. I we all know what I'm the fifth rapper. album is now. <laughs> uh, I absolutely do not. But I have been very influenced by spoken word and rap and the way that words run into each other. I became quite obsessed three or four years ago with very wordy songs. It started with Ed Sheeran, Shape of You, and it went on from there. I was like, devouring as many overly wordy songs as I possibly could. And I actually went through a massive phase where I was just like, words, 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 words. I'm in a songwriting club. I had songwriting club and I share songs with my group and they share songs with me. And, you know, a lot of the people who I was in the songwriting club with at the time were saying like, loving these songs where you've just like got no room to take a breath. <laughs> and I, I became really obsessed with just like words, 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 just coming at you. While I certainly wasn't intending to write any songs that sounded like Ed Sheeran, Shape of You, or any songs that sounded like rap, being influenced by that kind of spoken word, that kind of rap sensibility, I think meant that I naturally ended up with a bit of a rhythm in there to my phrasing that I wasn't trying to do. It just came because I had an obsession with things that sounded a certain way. It also kind of happened in a natural sense in that because I had so much to say, I had to fit it all in. Mm. And like the sheer practicalities of just having to fit all of my thoughts into a song. When I've done co-writing sessions a lot of the time, like people have, you know, I've, I've sort of come up with a way to phrase a line or something and people kind of look at me like, really? Like, I would have never sung it that way. And I think maybe my brain just works in a particular way with phrasing and with, with rhythm where I want to put things in a place that they kind of seem like they don't belong. I want to kind of go on the offbeat. I want to kind of fill in that gap when someone else might assume there's supposed to be a gap there. And and I don't entirely know why that is. I don't, I, you know, it's not just down to my obsession with whatever music I was listening to at the time I think it, I just go with what feels really natural with the song in order to say what I need to say and it just happened that with DJ on I had so much to say that I had to find clever ways to fit it all in <laughs> our time is rounding up but I want to talk about feelings are you feeling more complete now that dear John is out I am feeling more complete than when I created Dear John, but I don't think it's because Dear John is out. I think that's just the natural progression that my life has gone in. And from a work perspective, it's not so much that I feel complete now that it's out. I actually feel like things happened in exactly the right time. You know, people are like, oh, my God, you had to wait two years to release that album. And I just kind of feel like it was right on time. I don't think I would have been ready 
to stand on stage and sing these songs or to share it with the world any earlier because I had to go through my own personal process. So it's kind of a sense of now that it's released, now that I'm touring, it's a sense of I'm on the same path that I was on and I'm in the exact right spot. You've learned a lot more about yourself through this record as well. So much, so much. I still listen to the songs sometimes to remind myself of things that I've said to myself through the songs, you know, I'm, you know, having an issue or someone's offered to do me a gig and they want to pay me, you know, all and song lyric comes into my head of my own song, demanding I get a say for demanding I get my pay. And I'm like, that's right. I told myself that I would demand to get paid fairly. Okay, cool. It, it actually happens a lot. And that was the intention of the album. Like I said, it, it was for, you know, the woman that I didn't know. And it was also me writing my own future to remind myself because even though I wrote all of these songs and I stand on stage and I sing them, it doesn't mean I remember it all the time. Mm. It's for me all the time. It's it's not that like, okay, cool, I know that now and, and I'm done and it's finished and I move forward. It's like it's it's a work in process. I'm a work in process. As you said yourself, this it's a feminist album, Dear John, and it certainly is. Congratulations, yeah. Sam Buckingham. Thank you for releasing Dear Thank John, you. despite its name. <laughs> Thank you, John, for having me. Thank you for being one of the good Johns. Sam Buckingham. To find them online, sambuckingham.com. Also of note, a haunting version of Phil Collins' Another Day in Paradise done by them can be found on Katie Noonan's Songs That Made Me. Oh, great reminder there that uh, George, featuring Katie Noonan and her brother, will be touring the 20th anniversary of Polly Serene in the not-too-distant future. Thanks very much to Sam Buckingham for being our feature guest. Next time, we'll head into the archives and catch up with CNC Music Factory's Freedom Williams about his solo record back from the early 90s.